Good morning, everyone. We had such a great experience last Sunday at the 930 outdoor worship as we welcomed 18 high school students uh, as members of the church. Six students were baptized in the frigid waters of our dunk tank, and I was really happy to have Mike Flavin be in charge of that. Normally, our students complete the confirmation class during their freshman year, but the COVID crisis hit, and as you know, nothing's been normal ever since. I feel for our students and for our children because their schooling, their sports, their extracurricular activities, they've all been so dramatically affected. And I wonder, I wonder when they're adults, how will they look back on this crazy year 2020? What memories will they have? And that got me thinking about when I was a freshman in high school and what was going on in the world that year and kind of how it compares to 2020. My freshman year in high school was 1968. And yeah, that was a long time ago. What was going on in 1968? Well, it was a year of chaos and violence. The Vietnam War was at its peak and half a million U.S. military personnel were deployed in Vietnam. Everybody knew somebody who either got drafted or enlisted or was fighting in Vietnam. It was the bloodiest year of that war with an average of 50 Americans killed in battle per day. 50 per day. And every night on the evening news, we saw the regular parade of flag-draped coffins uh, coming home. One of the bloodiest battles of the war was called the Tet Offensive, and it started in January of 1968. And then in March, frustrated American soldiers committed a horrible massacre on the villagers of May Lai. And all across the country, college campuses just erupted with protests and rioting against the war. Then there were the assassinations. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed in April of 1968, followed by two months later by the killing of Bobby Kennedy, who was in line to become the Democrat Party's nominee to run for president. And race riots just kind of swept the nation, Detroit, Baltimore, Kansas City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and especially Chicago during the Democrat Party's national convention. A lot of cities burned that summer. The whole nation really seemed to be on fire. And at the Olympics in Mexico, athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists during the national anthem in solidarity with the Black Power movement. And then there was the pandemic, not as widespread as ours today, but the H3N2 virus, also known as the Hong Kong flu, killed about 100,000 people in the U.S. But it never became a political issue, even though there was also a hotly contested presidential election going on. Hubert Humphrey and Richard Nixon were battling it out in a very tough and bitter race. And a contentious third-party candidate made things even more complicated, the openly racist George Wallace from Alabama. Well, Nixon won because he ran on a law and order platform and the promise to bring stability. But the whole nation was in turmoil as the election unfolded. People were disillusioned. People were scared. It seemed like our country was was coming apart at the seams. In the January 1969 edition of Christianity Today magazine, their editor summed up 1968 this way. He wrote, people everywhere are asking, if God is God, why does he let all this happen? Christians are among those who are confused about the relevance of their faith to current problems. God's goodness, he wrote, is not always immediately apparent. Why does God let this happen? Doesn't that sound like a familiar question? Lots of Christians back then were predicting doom and gloom in the second coming. This has got to be the end, the apocalyptic preachers said. 
Jesus has to come back because it can't get any worse. All the signs were in place. There was no doubt Jesus' return is imminent. And so they sold a lot of books and raked in a lot of money because fear is actually a great fundraising tool. So 1968, an unpopular bloody war, urban unrest, racism, senseless violence, protests, riots, looting, burning cities, clashes with police and protesters, political polarization, and a pandemic. And then add in the sexual revolution and a big spike in drug use, especially hallucinogens like LSD. And that was my freshman year in high school. Sounds like we haven't come very far. We haven't moved the needle very much. The garbage is the same, only the flies are different. And so I'm worried about this week, the election and what's going to happen. Regardless of which candidate is elected, I think there will be people who will intentionally stir up trouble. We live in a deeply divided culture and we seem to have lost the ability to talk with those with whom we disagree. Our cancel culture just encourages people to pick their spot, wall themselves off from others who have a different opinion or perspective. But we're the church. We're followers of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We're not supposed to be like or act like the world. Romans 12, 1 says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. We're supposed to be living differently. We're the ones who supposedly believe that the gospel changes everything. The gospel is not just about saving our souls so that we can go to heaven someday. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom. Jesus' very first sermon, Mark 1:14, it went this way. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom, the power of God coming into the sinful, broken world to renew all things, the shalom, the peace, the wholeness of God breaking into our world right now and making a difference right now, making a difference in areas like racism and discrimination, injustice, poverty, healing relationships, making a difference in our personal morality, our sexual morality, and so on. And Jesus said the response to that good news should be to repent and to believe. Repent and to believe. That's what Jesus said. So do you endorse that? To repent and to believe. To repent and to believe are the two most important resources that we bring as the church to our current cultural moment. Personal and corporate repentance. Are you willing to do that? Are you up for that kind of challenge? Are you the kind of Christian who takes Jesus's words seriously? Because God's shalom, God's peace and wholeness is still breaking into our world as good news for the problems of our world, including racial discrimination. We can only begin down the path of racial reconciliation if we're willing to embrace our need to repent and to believe. And I can hear your brain spinning and asking, repent of what? I've never shot a black person. I've never knelt on someone's neck. I've never used the N-word. What do I need to repent of? Well, let's think of the personal sin of racism for a moment. You're probably familiar with the incident that happened in Central Park last May when an African-American bird watcher named Christian Cooper was confronted by a white woman whose dog was off the leash and they got into a conversation and she got so upset 
She called the police and said a black man was attacking her and threatening her life. Of course, it, it wasn't true, and eventually she was charged with a whole host of, of offenses. And because there was viral video of her racist rant, she was fired from her job. Now, from what I've read, up until that point, there was no hint of any racism in this woman's life. No hint, not at work, not with her colleagues, not in her college years, not with her friends or her family. There was just no hint of racism. She was just a normal white person, but something went off in her at that moment and unconscious patterns that were so deeply embedded in her, patterns that, that she wasn't even aware of, they took over. She had a racist reaction. It rose to the surface, exposed by a moment of, of personal stress or trauma. Where did that come from? Where did that sudden outburst of racism come from, from a woman who on every other day of her life seemed like a normal, non-racist person? Well, I'm sure she's had a lot of time to wonder about that. Where did that outburst come from? And we all have to ask ourselves that same question. Where might racism just have a root in my heart so subtly that I might not even be aware that it even exists? If you're like me, having grown up in a majority white culture, we're often the ones who are blind to the way racist thoughts and presuppositions and attitudes have just kind of subtly wormed their way into our unconscious, and we need to repent of that. Some racist stereotype, some deeply buried belief that in some way tells me that my race is superior to another. We need to call that out. We need to name it as sin, even if we don't know how it got there. Are we willing to call that what it is? It's sin. It's sin because racism diminishes the image of God stamped on all human beings equally at creation. We all bear the same image of our Creator and Redeemer. We are all loved equally by our Maker. His desire is that we should be all be one in Him. That's what, that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, His high priestly prayer, that all people created in the image of God would be one in Christ. That's what the Apostle John saw in his great vision of heaven in Revelation 7, verse 9. He says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's God's vision for his kingdom. It's only in our human sinfulness that racism and prejudice can divide and oppress. So repent and believe in the healing power of God's grace, the healing and reconciling of God's grace through Jesus Christ. We need to do that personally, but we also need to do that corporately as the church. You know, whenever we face difficult or demanding things, it's always good, go back to the scriptures, to do what the scriptures teach us and follow God's word as it instructs us on how to proceed. Whenever we're confused about how to deal with some current event, it is always good, go back and read the scripture. Rediscover kingdom of God principles, kingdom of God morality. And that can help you process and thinking about, think about what's happening in the world today. Uh, read the Gospel of Matthew. Read Jesus' teachings in that Gospel on the kingdom of God. That is a great place to start. But now we're in a series in the book of Acts. And last week we saw in Acts 5 that the first internal challenge faced by the early church was the hypocrisy of two people, Ananias and Sapphira. But now we're in Acts 6, where we see that the second internal challenge that the church had to face was racism. Here's how the story begins in Acts 6, verse 1. 
In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So did you catch that? One racial group was being overlooked or disadvantaged by another racial group in this daily distribution of food. Not just one person. There was a general feeling was building up that something wasn't right here. In Jerusalem, the church was made up primarily by Hebraic Jews who had grown up in Israel. Their first language was a form of Hebrew called Aramaic, and they were fully invested into the culture, the clothes, the customs of Israel. They considered themselves to have a pure Jewish bloodline as they could trace their ancestors back over 500 years to those who returned from exile in Babylon with Nehemiah and Ezra. They were the ones who had rebuilt the land. They had shunned outsiders and they had kept their bloodline pure. The other group were Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews whose ancestors had settled in other parts of the world, often by forcible relocation. In places like Egypt and North Africa, Turkey, Greece, Rome, all the larger cities of the ancient world had sizable Jewish populations, but over the centuries, there were new converts from other races who intermingled, intermarried. After 500 years of this, they, you know, their skin color was a little different. The Hellenistic Jews took on the mannerisms and customs and dress of their adopted lands. They spoke Greek as their first language, and if they spoke Aramaic at all, it was, you know, a funny accent. So you could easily pick out who was who and what group they belonged to. Some of the Hellenistic Jews had resettled in Jerusalem. Some of them had come to Jerusalem on a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage for Passover. But they all got caught up by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when the preaching of the gospel began. These Hellenistic Jews were part of the thousands who returned, who had turned to Christ through the preaching of the apostles. And they were there to see the church begin. They were part of it from the beginning. They were part of this new community of love and compassion that we saw so vividly described in Acts chapter 4. But there was something wrong in the church. And up to this point, the leaders had missed it. The apostles, they didn't know there was a problem. But after all, all the apostles were Hebraic Jews. The division of the world had somehow crept into the church, and they didn't see it. There was an unequal distribution of resources, and it fell right along racial lines. The Hellenistic Jews were being mistreated, and once exposed, the racial division was considered to be so serious that for the first time in the whole book of Acts, the whole church stops and gathers together. That means thousands of people somehow gathered together in verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of, and of God uh, in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicantor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. There's a sense in this text of, look, the world is going to have its divisions, but not in God's house. When the divisions of the world become the divisions of the church, we have to stop everything and address it. 
this cannot be. And so they pushed the pause button, gathered everyone together, and the way they address this problem of racism is very instructive to us today. First, they took the problem seriously. The apostles, hey, they could have brushed it off, could have said, oh, those guys are overly sensitive. You know how they are. They're always complaining. They should just be grateful. They should be grateful we're giving them anything at all. Where's the gratitude for us allowing them into our club? I knew they'd be trouble. They always are. No, there was none of that. They took the problem seriously. You know, we tend to think of the early church as this perfect group of disciples blessed with these dramatic outpourings of the Holy Spirit, powerful preaching, a massive growth of disciples. But just because God was moving powerfully doesn't mean everything was right. It sobers us to realize that the church is always a building under construction, always a work in progress. We're always not quite ready for Jesus. Jesus is our builder, but the church is always under construction. And there was an indication of systemic racism beginning to gather momentum in the early church, and the church's top leaders needed to address this something that was wrong. And the work of the church could not go on until they addressed it. And secondly, they listened. They listened to the complaint of the minority group. They listened collectively as a church fellowship. They gathered everyone together, not some backroom deal, but open and honest and out in front, they went through a process of, of listening, of acknowledgement to look at the situation and then to decide what was needed to be done. And then they took the practical steps to carry it out. That's something the church still needs to do, to listen. To listen to the stories of those who are not a part of the majority culture. Uh, to hear their experiences of discrimination, of bias, and hate. Yes, even here in suburban New Jersey, there is racial hate. To listen, because I think many of our black brothers and sisters do not feel like white Christians are really willing to listen, are really open to honestly listen without getting defensive and dismissive. It's a powerful thing when you feel like someone has really listened to you, because listening Listening is always the first step to understanding. And then third, they took action. The apostles came up with a solution that was specific and was culturally sensitive. Specific because they first of all clarified their role as the spiritual leaders of this new church community. Their primary role was the ministry of the word, preaching and teaching. But they recognized that a new layer of leadership needed to be created. Now, historically, we've used this passage to tell the story of how we got deacons because the phrase wait on tables is the Greek word for deacon. And in our tradition, the deacon's role focuses on caring for the practical, physical needs, emotional needs of the church body. So we see this as the onset of this deacon type ministry. And while that may be the case, that's not the main point of the text. There is so much more going on here. All of the seven names mentioned in the text are Greek names. They chose seven people from the Hellenic Jews, the aggrieved party. The apostles took authority away from those who were abusing it, the Hebraic Jews, and intentionally placed it with the seven Hellenistic Jews who could best address the situation at hand. Now they did this openly, publicly, in a spirit of reconciliation and trust. And we're told in verse 5 that this proposal pleased the whole group. 
the whole group, both the Hebraic and Hellenistic Jews. No one felt slighted. No one felt offended. I've always believed in the principle that people tend to support what they help to create, and we see that here. There was a true unity and positivity for how the problem was addressed. And then in the very next verse, verse 7, we see that those real solutions led to real transformation. Verse 7 says, So the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We see how the church stops to gather and address a real problem, and then the result is a multitude of people come to know the Lord. Luke, the, the author of Acts, he specifically mentions that right after this decision to address this discrimination, a large group of priests become obedient to the faith. Well, why? This racial division is a problem the priests probably had already witnessed in Jerusalem for a very long time. Maybe the priests were waiting. They were looking at this new sect to see how are they going to handle it. And what they see is nothing but supernatural. The church's response communicates that they're not going to gloss over the problem, that they're willing to call racial division sin, and then that they're willing to give real solutions to the division. The early church viewed it as their spiritual and moral obligation to address these issues of racial division. It was like a clog in their spiritual drain pipe, and they needed it flushed out before the spirit could really flow freely. And as the priests saw this, I think they recognized something was different about this Christ-centered community, and many became obedient to the faith. You know, I think these people were all good people in the Jerusalem church. I'm pretty sure the Hebraic believers, they weren't intentionally trying to discriminate against the Hellenic believers, but it happened. And that points to something beyond just individual action or intention. It points to what we call systemic racism. There was something at work behind the scenes that was bigger than the individual pieces. Customs and attitudes and laws that had built up over hundreds of years that were actually discriminatory. There was a prejudice that was invisible to the majority. They didn't see it, even though they were participating in it. Think of it this way. If you see a brick house that's kind of falling apart or leaning to one side, it's likely that it's not the individual bricks that are defective. It's the structure that's off. Something is off with the blueprints or the foundation that the bricks were built on. The bricks are just participating in a larger compromised structure. You may have never committed a single racist act in your entire life, but you could still be a participant in a sinful structure that benefits some and disadvantages others. Now, I love our country. I love our church. I am a proud patriot. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I can't recognize that deep into our history, that there is this unstated belief, because of our history in, with slavery, there is this unstated belief that white people are somehow better than black people. Now, I'm not sinning by being white, but I do receive benefits by being white that our friends of color do not. And the early church leaders called that out as sin. Are we willing to do the same? If God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, then we must recognize that when our heart's posture is divisive or when we stand idly by in the midst of any kind of discrimination, we're actually in opposition to God's mission. 
Racial divisions aren't simply a social issue reserved for politicians or civic leaders to handle. This is a spiritual and moral problem. And blindness to these divisions within the church will negatively impact our future mission. Let me say that again. Blindness to these divisions within the church will negatively impact our future mission. The divisions of the world have crept into the church. And so the question is, does the church have real solutions for this division? And praise God, the answer is a resounding yes. Or at least a qualified yes. The church can have real solutions for this division. But we have to start by willing to embrace Jesus' call to repent and to believe. To call out as sin any division caused by racism, discrimination, or prejudice. And then to believe in and act on our belief in the sovereign grace of God to heal divisions through the love of Christ. Now, I want you to do some homework this week. I want you to watch an 18-minute video by a guy named Phil Vischer. Phil Vischer with a V. He was one of the people behind the VeggieTales videos that many of our kids have watched over the years. He was actually the voice of Bob the Tomato, too. But he recently did a short video that really explains systemic racism really, really well. It's on YouTube, just for search for Holy Post Race in America, or use his name, search for Phil Vischer, V-I-S-C-H-E-R, Vischer Race in America. It's the first video in the series that he does. It's 18 minutes and well worth your time. Now you might not agree with everything he says, and that's fine, but watch it and prayerfully consider how to think about systemic racism in America with a kingdom of God mindset. You know, Jesus prayed we would be one. Racism in his church is something that breaks his heart. But when addressed, the beautiful result is a witness to the world. Let's be the church Christ has called us to be. And by his grace, let the church lead the way in racial reconciliation and bring a powerful witness for this moment in time, the year 2020. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that this passage is just such a clear reminder to us of how sin creeps into the life of the church, how we bring attitudes of the world into the church because we haven't shed our skin of all of that yet, Lord. We are people in process, that we are bricks on a leaning wall. And Lord, we need to call out both individual and systemic racism when we see it, Lord. We need to be the people who are reconcilers, to be the people who repent and then believe in the reconciling power of the gospel. Give us that grace this week, Lord, to be open, to, to take things seriously, to listen, to be willing to act decisively, and to present a better witness to the world of what the love of Christ can actually do. Thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.